0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new centerfire rifle ammunition, Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet, and it comes in a variety of cartridges, including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06, and the... 300 win mag if you want to find more information about the terminal ascent visit federalpremium.com and while you're there check out it's federal season the official podcast of federal ammunition
1: this is episode 59 chewing the fat with dan born nick sits down with dan born conservationist all-around outdoorsman and contributing writer for sportsman's nation The two guys chat about a whole host of topics, from trying not to get caught up in the hunting gear frenzy to how to serve up wild game to family members with strict diet rules. The guys also unpack Dan's knife roll and how his set of processing gear won't break the bank, yet has him not lacking when breaking down animals large or small. So settle in for a fun conversation. Well, hey folks, beautiful evening I would like to say that me and my four-year-old would have gotten a deer tonight, but I think that would have gotten in the way of the guest that I had uh, lined up for us. Not, I mean, he would have thought that it would be all right for us to just get out there and uh, go ahead and gut ourselves a doe, but it just wasn't in the cards. But tonight, I am here with Dan Bourne, uh, a writer and conservationist, and he also writes for uh, Sportsman's Nation. Dan, thank you so much for uh, taking some time and joining us this
2: evening. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on.
1: As we were uh, getting into just uh, talking, we were doing a little sound check here. I was asking, things, how are things over there in Minnesota? And you were letting me know that you've already got snow on the ground. Six to eight inches is what you were saying?
2: Yeah, it started uh, early this morning, uh, pre-dawn, and just hasn't stopped. It still hasn't stopped. So I, you're right on six to eight inches. It's a bit of a shock. You know, we had a we spent all weekend with the kids decorating for Halloween, and now like everything is it's very it's looking very un-Halloween-y. <laughs> well,
1: um, you're a you're a Midwest guy. You're up from the southern southern Minneapolis, or not southern Minneapolis, yep. but southern Minnesota. Southern Minnesota. Yeah. So you you've already got it covered. That yeah, when you create a Halloween costume, it has to fit over a snowsuit, correct?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Lots of loose baggy. You don't want to, unless you're a college girl of a certain age, you don't want to dress in a super, super tight Halloween clothes.
1: (laughs) So good deal. So have you gotten out in the stand? I know that when we were first talking that uh, you've, you've only been in the stand just a few times this season.
2: Yeah, I've been, uh, let's see, I was in last weekend um, and started to finally see some, some, some buck movements mostly smaller bucks um cameras are kind of showing the same thing uh uh, i guess i should say i i've been really lucky that i I get to hunt a i have a my family owns a farm so i spend a lot of time hunting out there uh and then i just got back from a wyoming mule deer hunt as well which was fun but we, we did not see uh much for bucks
1: gotcha any anything on its on its feet though
2: out there, you know, we it was crazy. We went out there last year at this time and it was snowing and this year it was eighty five degrees out in Wyoming and there was just there was nothing on there on its feet except for pronghorn, which are awesome to hunt, but we didn't have tags for.
1: Isn't that how that always goes? And being a Midwest guy, you probably understand that yeah, you go out there looking for deer and you find squirrels and then the moment <laughs> yeah. you decide to go find squirrels, you kick up all the deer. So,
2: yeah, pretty totally much. That. that was a story. That was a story of the whole, we were there for like four or five days. We bumped in some guys from Houston, Texas, who had been there for seven days and had shot one deer between the five of them. So, I mean, it was, it seemed like rough hunting all around in that area. We were near Gillette, Wyoming.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you've been in, in the the outdoor world for majority of your life. I mean, you come from Minnesota, the land of walleye, white tails, and wolves. So yeah. you've this is not, nothing, you know, that this whole realm is nothing new to you. Um, and then you decide to go off and join the Army. Tell me a little bit about your background uh, being in the military.
2: Sure. Uh, you know, I, I was looking for ways to, to pay for college. So when I was uh, 17, um, I joined the Minnesota National Guard. Uh, as a reconnaissance scout and, uh, you know, did eight years in the reserves and in, in the guard, excuse me, uh, including a, a tour overseas in Kosovo back in 2003. Um, my main role in the military was as a reconnaissance scout and as the automatic weapons specialist on a, on a scout team or a patrol team. A lot of field time, a lot of time, you know, you know, it was funny when I when I got out of the service. I said I'd never carry a a rucksack again, um, <laughs> and then it was just after the service I went into the I went into the Forest Service after I got out of college, and was just carrying a a rucksack again across you know mountains. So it's been yeah being outside, boots on the ground, uh, in kind of the deep the deep wild countries. that always been a big part of my life.
1: Gotcha, that's that just sounds I mean, yeah, I, I'm not a military guy, but you know, carrying a backpack is is something that that isn't new to me as far as either carrying out into the woods or something. But at the same time, like I prep for these backpacking trips that will go on a week at a time and you go off to and there's usually an established trail. And you know, some of the hiking can be hard, but most of it's pretty pretty flat. But at the same time we do that for enjoyment where you're doing that for your job at that point. How is it is how is it to live out of a backpack for an extended period of time, not just as like knowing when there you know when your start date is, but you definitely don't know when your end date is gonna be. Does that really kind of like change the way that you uh basically approach life at that point? You're really kind of like cutting things down to be very minimalistic.
2: Yeah, you wanna be you wanna cut weight, but you also wanna pack as much as you possibly can, like especially the comfort items. I mean, there's nothing. You don't want to be around 150 guys that have that were told they were going to be in the field for seven days, and were only and were in the field for ten days, and everybody is, you know, back in these days, everyone was out of out of smokes and out of chew and just angry and, um, you know, waiting for that supply drop. So, yeah, I mean, it, in terms of packing, it was always a matter of balancing those few comfort items you could squeeze in your ruck and all the extra stuff you know you'd need. Uh, you need, you really become a believer in packing extra socks.
1: <laughs> socks is where it's at, huh? Keeping the feet
2: dry. Yeah, man, that was like the major lesson the Army taught me before I became really involved with kind of tougher country hunting was, is, it's all about your feet. It's the, exact, it's the exact same thing.
1: And we've heard that from not just you, but other hunters from out west. Or, oh, yeah. You know, even the celebrity guys, we look at you know the mothership over there at uh, Meat Eater. Each of those guys, they'll they'll tell you right away that you know you can't hunt if you can't be on your feet. And being a flatlander here in in Michigan, um, I have I have my fair share of like deep wet holes. There's always some like muck hole that wants to eat you and your boot or you're going to be going in some real sloshy areas. So it's it, instead of the hiking up, it's more of the trying to not go down with it. So I hear you. I'm like having a good stable rubber boot. You know, I've, I have switched over to the Gore-Tex uh, light hikers, but at the same time, like, yeah, it does definitely play into, you know, I'm not, if my feet get wet, I'm definitely not going to be happy.
2: And it's kind of like the hunting analogy of, of spending more money on a scope. Like if you're in, if you can buy a if if you have to buy a scope and a rifle, put the money into the scope over the cost of the rifle. Boots are the same way. Uh, you know, if the boots, I'm willing to spend more on boots than I am in almost any other part of my hunting hunting gear.
1: Now, gear. Um, this would be a great talk to have. Is that especially a guy who not only did you have gear, and like you said, you worked as a automatic weapons specialist. But it's definitely at the point of how do you use that gear? Being, I would say, in a in the United States right now, it's it's one of those things like there's always someone coming out with some gizmo, some gadget that we think that we have to have or we have to try. And I say this full knowing that I have gotten a saddle this year, so I'm fully into buying all the gizmos oh, cool. and gadgets. Um, but at the same time, being able to take that and making it a useful part of your kit making things work together because a lot of times like the latest and greatest may not work exactly the way you want is there stuff that it's like you know what this is a high dollar item this is something that's really like cutting edge but at the same time you're not willing to put it into your pack or into your setup at that point because you know it's either untested or unproven is that kind of the mentality you also take when it comes to what you're going to take on one of these longer hunts
2: yeah, I'm big on uh, per, at least per, my perception of durability. There's a lot of, I think, high-end, very light items out there that I, I'm just maybe not 100%. I don't want to depend on when I'm when I'm you know, multiple miles back in. Uh, I'm a big believer in durability, and occasionally that means stuff has to be heavier, uh, but not always. Um, so I, I always look for that. Uh, I'm also not... I know gear, kind of gear culture has taken over hunting in the last five, six years, where it's become like an obsession. I'm not one of those gear obsessed dudes. If I can find something that works really well for me, I tend to stick with it. I don't upgrade bows every year. I don't I don't spend thousands of dollars on equipment. I, I find what works, and then I usually run it to the ground. I think, like, for instance, um, almost all my hunting clothing is first light. And I absolutely love it. But, you know, I'm on my third or fourth season on on a lot of my first leg gear. It holds up really well. It performs really well. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it's a little faded and there's a couple holes here or there, but uh, I'm maybe a bit of a cheapskate when it comes to gear. I want to <laughs> buy something once and keep it forever.
1: I like that. I like that. I'm in the given scenario too, where I've got three young kids, and so they do they eat up a chunk of change either yeah, when it comes too. to the grocery bill or even like you know they've got their own aspirations and they want to uh you know they need their toys for Christmas and stuff, so there's a lot of, a lot of sacrifice on my end, so if I can make something work another season, yeah, but if it if I really need to upgrade and willing to do it like all right well let's let's save up the money for that, and then at least I'll take the the, the hit on it first. And then, um, you know, dad'll come last when it comes to his toys. But anyway, that's, that's where yeah. I've gone with it.
2: No, I mean, and I don't want to like say you shouldn't spend money. Cause I mean, it's amazing when you, like, for instance, I bought uh, an Everly stock F1 mainframe last year. And when that box arrived in the mail, there was no way you could have convinced me that inside that huge box was a pack frame. It was so light uh so that's been a like a revelation to me kind of building in my my pack system with everly stock is just how amazing some of that quality actually is and it's worth every penny coming from
1: yeah coming a, from the old school pennies. stuff to the new stuff you uh, probably definitely know the the big difference between it
2: i what i would have done for that pack i don't know 15 years ago when I was in the service i would have I out of I'd have done horrible things. That that <laughs> thing is it carries weight so well compared to the stuff that uh, we were issued. It, it's amazing.
1: Well, hey, we've kind of like we've 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 taken off a little bit on um on, on a little bit of some of your expertise, um, but not only just being in the service and then uh, working for the Forest Service. Um, you did some uh, environmental work for for oil pipelines and really being deep and stuff, and now coming full circle again now. What is your what is your day to day job right now?
2: All right, so uh, yeah, I worked for a lot of years at the Forest Service, and I loved working for as a scientist for the for the government. Uh, I felt that was a really good fit. I did have to leave the Forest Service where I worked primarily as a archaeologist. Uh, I had to leave that due to some family concerns, stay around Minnesota, and uh, so I had to leave the Forest Service. Unfortunately, and it took a few years. Of odds and ends type jobs before I landed my current position, I work for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture as a regulatory specialist. We mostly look at invasive species vectors and invasive species mitigation in industry, like uh, the lumber industry, you know, tree farms, grain, you know, ag- agricultural products. So it's it's less science and more just kind of straight regulatory stuff, but uh, I like it.
1: There you go. And then for your hobby, you then get back to the pen and paper and uh, have become this this blog artist and this writer, um, all surrounding around the outdoor and the conservation. What what started you on that path of just saying, you know, what I want to take my passion and what I love doing, and I want to I want to put that down on paper what what started that venture for you
2: i've always enjoyed writing uh, as professionally i do a lot of writing but it's very dry very um you know if you ever had to read a super dry kind of journal article in college that's kind of the style i've had to write with for the last 15 years uh, academic style writing uh when i got when i left the forest service i m- missed working on conservation and talking about conservation so kind of two things happens one, one i got involved with backcountry hunters and anglers and that kind of scratched my scratched the itch for uh you know working for a resource and then the writing kind of came about through backcountry but also just following um being introduced to blogs and what podcasts were and following some you know, some people like, uh, like Mark Kenyon, his uh, Wired to Hunt uh, page, and then podcast. I thought, you know, I'm, I could maybe do something like this, and I submitted some articles to people, and uh, it just kind of snowballed a bit from there.
1: Nice, nice. I'm sure it's really refreshing to be able to take a subject that you love and be able to just expound. Uh, not only on facts, but at the same time add your personal twist into it, instead of having to cite from your reference page where you got this data from, on your, your normal workday stuff. Because yeah, academic papers can just oh, uh, they're awful. I when uh, I got my master's, I could I thought I'm never gonna read anything again, and I'm finally like looking at books again. Like, <laughs> but it's oh, taking exactly how
2: you feel. Uh, I was writing my master's in 2008, eight, and nine, and I was doing, I did my master's degree on a, on a 9,000 year old, uh, bison kill site in, in Nebraska. I mean, so I hunt, I I've been lucky that I can work hunting into a lot of stuff. Uh, and so this is a, a bison kill site in Nebraska and it was still incredibly boring at times to research and to write. Um, so at that same time I picked up. Steve Rinella's American uh, Buffalo book. And and that was like such diametrically opposed in terms of style and enjoyability than all those journals were that like reading that book while I was writing my, my thesis really helped.
1: Oh, good. They just kept that fire in there. Now, were you able to visit that site in Nebraska as well?
2: Uh, yeah, not. Uh, so most of the work I did was lab work. So I was processing soil samples from the site. Uh, But then, after I actually was finished with my master's degree, I worked around the site as a Forest Service employee.
1: That's crazy. It was pretty
2: pretty cool. Yeah.
1: To think right there in Nebraska, like we just think Corn Belt, there's nothing going on, but that there was a huge event that happened right there, uh, probably smack dab in the middle of it. That is just a, a neat thing. When you were doing these soil samples, was it basically just looking at like, basically like you're just breaking down the soil at that point and just saying like, well, these are the min- mineral com- pom- mineral compounds that are here. Or was there something specific that you were looking for?
2: All right. So I'll uh, warn you, this can get kind of, kind of dry, <laughs> but uh, I'll do my best to not make it too boring. So uh, we were doing a uh, kind of a ecological reconstruction based off of microfossils found in the soil. So when a plant, so we're doing a lot of grassland studies, Uh, When a plant takes up water, they take up uh, silica as well. And at the cellular level, plants will, I think it's kind of like a defense mechanism, will surround themselves with this silicate. And when those plants die, that returns to the soil into the form of these microscopic fossils. And if you know what you're looking for, uh, which... Involves a lot of microscope work, you can get a pretty good idea of where what plant species these fossils came from. So we were looking at the, we we're trying to identify which types of plants were on the site when the site was formed through looking at these microfossils, which just involves taking your soil and running it through all these chemical compounds and processes until nothing is left but these tiny glass fossils. Wow, if that makes sense,
1: and people say that conservation is just a surface level thing, you know.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, it, it, we're nine thousand years deep in that, so it was it was pretty cool. That
1: is awesome. So doing some doing the writing, um, and then yeah, joining joining backcountry hunters and anglers uh, got you fired up um, for really kind of taking this this step into that. Um, have you done anything? Um, what do I want to say administratively with BHA or have you just been a a member and, um, yeah, just a member of the organization? Uh,
2: up until about, well, about six, seven months ago when all this COVID stuff started, I was a board member. Uh, I was a board member for the Minnesota chapter for uh, two to three years. And, um, just coincidentally around six months ago, I decided it was time for me to kind of step down and, and, um, I'm a big believer in term limits and constantly putting in new, fresh faces. So I felt like I'd, I'd done what I wanted to do there and was feeling a bit stagnant, which is on more on me than it was on BHA. So I decided to step down and, and just remain a, a very active member.
1: Gotcha. There you go. No, I totally agree with that, that it's sometimes people get comfortable and then when things get comfortable, nothing moves, nothing shakes and everything just kind of stays, stays the same. So getting some fresh blood in there is a, is always a good thing.
2: Yeah, it's been a great. It was great to be a part of that and to be, to still be a part of it. Uh, in terms of writing, it certainly introduced me to a lot of people uh, and uh, there's a lot of great voices within BHA uh, that, I look up to, whether they know it or not, as, as kind of mentors. If you have, like, your Hal Herrings, uh, Ed Arnett with uh, the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, um, just a lot of amazing voices within BHA and surrounding BHA, uh, you know, all the way up to uh, Jim Poswitz, who recently passed away. There's so many uh, voices and personalities that you can mine within BHA that will just... Expand your knowledge base exponentially that you would never get otherwise.
1: Yeah, i I joined BHA myself. Uh, was this three, three, four years ago? Um, mainly because I was like, well, it's not a specific, uh, it's not geared towards a specific game animal. I found it being more of a wide range, and I was like, you know what, I'm I'm looking to broaden my own horizons. This might be a great venture um, to step down or step into. And Mm -hmm. my, my biggest focus for, uh, becoming a hunter was really surrounding sustainability when it came to food at that point yeah, is that, I mean, granted that's, that's my, this is what the whole podcast is about is, you know, eating your game. But that was my real, like, I want to figure out or be able to basically have a platform or even just hear more from folks who understand a little bit about, Sustainability in their food and how this is going to basically just help them and their surrounding food chain. And it was just amazing that even in our small circle of a, a Michigan BHA and then working into a lot of those other members, um, in, in larger circles, that the more talking that I would do, that people would have that same idea and same style of thinking where they're saying, like, yeah, I don't have to go to the grocery store every week to get meat because I've got a freezer that's full of it. And so at that point, you know, necessarily that meat could go off to somebody else, but at the same time it shortened that family's food chain that they were like, yeah, I don't have to worry about that. It's just the produce that we have to go get. So it was fun to bounce ideas off of that and then really to have my own eyes opened up to say that, you know, this is something that even though we're taking from it and this is a great renewable resource, we want to continue that renewable aspect. And if we don't take any action on that, if we don't continue to, what's the analogy that – um Oh, I've used it a couple of times and I forget the gentleman who did it where you know you you're always improving the pump but you're not improving the well if we don't take all care the, of that All the well, Leopold I think. Leopold there we go if you don't yeah. take care of that that well you know your pump is basically going to dry out so I really liked how more and more people have been voicing that as well and that conservation isn't now just something that isn't heard of or it's just by uh hunters and anglers but I think it's becoming something as much as we don't want to make it a political player, I think it's becoming something that's really that people are becoming to notice.
2: Yeah. And I think all of us who will go out in the field and hunt would like to look at it purely from that perspective all the time, but uh, public lands and hunting and wild game, all that stuff has been part of politics for over a hundred years. You know, it, it pops up in different ways, but it's always there. Whether whether it's a huge thing like the Pittman-Robertson Act being passed in, was it, 37, 38, to, you know, to have, I mean, the fact that you have politicians that will throw on, uh, you know, go to the store quick and get some pheasant gear just for a photo op to try to appeal to hunters shows that, hunters and hunting have been part of the political sphere for a long long time
1: so we do have weight and it's maybe only yeah. in these last couple of years that again it's become as strong as it is what it was
2: yeah and i think str- and, and more laser focused on i mean there is a long history of organizations that are focused on this on single animal species like you mentioned but uh now we're almost is VHA especially is really good at being laser focused on a broad thing, which is the landscape, landscape use, and landscape preservation.
1: Well, good deal. Kind of taking a, a hard shift over here. Um, we we did talk a little bit about uh, food and sustainability, and yes. going through uh, again, going through your articles. You, my friend, you know your way around the kitchen pretty well. Uh, you have an asobuco recipe um, posted on <laughs> our sport on the Sportsman's Nation. Um, that's a nice little dish right there.
2: And you know that it's it, now that you mentioned that one. That was one of the. F- so I grew up in a hunting family. We always had wild game meat. We ate a lot of venison. We still do. We eat a lot of panfish. You know, being fishermen in Minnesota. But I mean, even in college, I very rarely bought beef. We always had venison um, when I was growing up but with that i got kind of limited to you know the three or four dishes that i grew up with and didn't really change much and then you know a lot around the same time all this kind of stuff happened with getting more involved in conservation you just naturally want to expand how you use the resource and that also also buco recipe which is kind of a a combination of I think one of Hank Shaw's recipes and one of Ronaldo's recipes. I mean also Google, it's it's just you can't really give it to one person. It's it's a, a known dish. But I drew a little bit of from each uh, from those two individuals specifically. And that just opened my eyes. Like prior to that, it makes me wonder how many shanks got thrown in the grind pile or didn't even get used by the pro- by a, a processor I sent a deer to. And from then on out, I was like, never again. I'll, if I take my, I'll take deer to a processor, and before I do, I'll cu- I'll just cut the shanks off myself.
1: There you go, just so you can hold on to those. I I have recently pro- proclaimed the shank as my favorite cut. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, right up there with backstrap and tenderloin uh we've we've really jumped on the barbacoa aspect you mentioned uh i would say the man the myth the legend hank shaw and that was one of his first recipes that i grabbed onto granted i first started with two chipotle peppers just the peppers into because again we're from the midwest i'm from michigan i can't handle a fresh ha- <laughs> fresh jalapeno I
2: I went the opposite direction. I read the instructions wrong and put two or three cans in there. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, hey, I reached out to Hank. I was like, I think I did something wrong. Uh, but uh, I ended up fixing it by, by just adding a lot more meat to it. But, you no, know, that recipe in particular, Hank Shaw's barbacoa, that is my go-to for introducing people who've maybe never had wild game to wild game. And that, that dish just goes over so well wherever I take it.
1: It is. It's such a I mean the you pull that out and, you know, you shred that point and there's just so much velvety liquid goodness that even is just dripping off the meat. I mean, you already need two uh, tortillas just to get enough on there to make it really worth Mm. your while on there. So, yeah, I'm glad to say that we've uh, we've got the same same love of shanks there, especially from from Hank. That is a dynamite recipe that he's uh, that he's put together. Um. What is your strangest cut that you had the uh, the opportunity to cook up?
2: Ooh, let's see. Uh, probably the strangest meat for me I've ever had was I oh I didn't prepare it was a mountain lion a few years ago. Which you know I'd never been too interested in, in hunting lion before, and then I got a chance to eat some lion, and and I thought well oh, I could definitely go out and hunt mountain lion now. <laughs>
1: uh, that just made the taste. You've got the hunger now. <laughs>
2: yeah i was like that, that kind of provides that final connection you know it's kind of like i've never gone bear hunting i just need to get some hands on some bear meat and make some great bear meat dishes and i'll get i'll get hungry to go bear hunting then i'm sure uh, so that's probably my strangest but in terms of what i usually make you know i think it's not as strange as it used to be but my family specifically absolutely including my kids i have uh uh, let's see, a six, year, five year old, a seven year old, and a ten year old, and they go absolutely crazy for deer heart. Fried deer heart is their favorite dish, which I think is probably pretty unique. They're probably the only kids in their class that that rave about deer heart.
1: Yeah, with the with the addition of, I would say, just social media and everything else, um, yeah, a lot of that fifth quarter has really come back. Especially the heart. The heart's probably the easiest way to get into you know, the, the insides, just because it is a muscle at that point, are you squaring up just some rounds off those? So you're taking that heart and you're just going by cuts or are you dismantling the whole thing and then just doing small pieces?
2: So, uh, I think one of the, besides tasting awesome, I think one of the reasons my kids like heart so much, just like I grew up liking heart was there's a certain amount of, uh, like tradition or ceremony surrounding it in our family growing up we ate heart at deer camp the last end of deer camp when we were butchering as our deer camp has kind of broken up over the years we now do heart christmas day we save them for christmas after everyone's done with all the christmas stuff we go out to the garage my my grandfather so my kid's great grandfather he he brings along his old fryer and we just we just cut them up thin dust them in seasoned flour and cook them super hot and super fast in butter
1: oh uh, nice so just a a legit deep fryer right there at that point
2: yeah and it's got all this you know from my my at the time six-year-old or five-year-old getting his first pocket knife and helping my grandfather you know cut up the meat there there's a certain amount of of ceremony that goes with it i think that adds to it but at the end of the day it's just a damn good cut of meat too
1: it is. It's super unique, and I'm glad to hear that. That's that's good. That's kind of our our deer camp. My group of buddies, uh, we we can't really find time to do our deer camp when we've uh, we've all got jobs that are right on site. We've all got kids, and so for us to just kind of get away for an extended weekend during the season is difficult. We have mm-hmm. found other ways to get away. Uh, we do that total archery challenge in the summer, and we get away for a long weekend, and that's been helpful. But yeah, we'll do just like one evening where we quote unquote call it deer camp. And yeah, everybody brings their hearts and we just do the rounds, rounds with onions, and that just seems to go yeah, over too. so well. But yeah, I'll have to give the deep fry a, a try. That'll be something different. I bet you I can get my in laws to even uh get a get into that a little bit. They're they're not opposed to uh venison, but yeah, anytime I bring something weird out, they're uh they're always a little side eye side-eye at it
2: i was i was surprised that my kids liked it as much as they did uh, my you know, i grew up in a in a hardcore hunting family my wife grew up vegetarian so when i came to our kids i didn't quite know which way it was going to go my wife now eats like uh sh- chicken and fish but she doesn't eat red meat so um i wasn't quite sure how to work with the kids but Before they were born, I could get by on one or two deer a year, and now I'm noticing I need at least three deer a year. So they're eating it for sure.
1: And it's only going to get worse. You're going to have to up it to four and maybe get a couple of them involved at this point.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, my 10-year-old needs to hurry up and turn 12 so I can get her through (laughs) gun safety and out in the field.
1: Just wanted to take a time out and say thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook, The Huntivore, or Instagram, at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company who give 1% of their earnings and 1% of their time helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. Well, good deal. So go- going back a little bit to your, your uh, military days, you've also got a second, uh, or no, I shouldn't say a second, but you've got an article that really caught my eye, and that was a kit breakdown of your knife roll. Basically, you unrolled your, your knife roll that you use either for processing or just all around in, in your uh, game processing world and lay out the pieces that are inside that roll these are things that you use to either, you know, either skin something out or be able to fillet meat or even uh, take care of a of small game, and I really loved that breakdown. And I'll I'll leave the link uh, from the the Sportsman's Nation uh, article that you did on it. But I noticed on that article there wasn't any high dollar item that was on that uh, that
2: knife roll. Yeah, it's. There, there really isn't. I think the most expensive knife on there is like fifty or sixty bucks. I don't have, I don't have it in front of me. I, the snowstorm that caught us caught me unprepared today. I was gonna take notes, but I'm pretty sure the uh, most expensive knife is like the Condor Nesmuk skinning knife at about fifty dollars.
1: You betcha. Yeah, I, I have it pulled up here, so I can even, I can even help you out with it. So yeah, you're at forty three bucks for this,
2: uh, for this skinner. Yeah, and that was, I mean, kind of half, when I was kind of putting that uh, idea together for an article, like many, I think, outdoor writers, it came out of a necessity because I needed to get something together. And I was like, oh, this is make kind of a cool article. So about half the knives in there are just knives that have worked over the years and came with me. And well, the other half I bought along the way for very specific reasons. Um, the... One of my favorite pieces in there is uh, it's a Japanese-style uh, pull saw. Um, that's in there, right? You're looking at the article? Yes. Yeah. So that's a saw that, um, you know, most American-made saws cut on the push stroke. This Japanese saw cuts on the pull stroke, which uh, theoretically gives you better control. And I can tell you it makes a much smoother cut. And I bought that strictly to start digging into shanks freeze my shanks and then take that saw to it to break them down cut them into discs that's an and that's like you can go to a hardware store and buy one of those for 25 bucks and it's an amazing saw nice nice
1: i did see yeah especially with the pull saw and the way that i've gone about it is well I, you know i i go to this estate sale and i find this japanese it's got the name swordfish and then it has all the japanese letters that are on the side of it and it's basically a hacksaw but the cool yes. part of it is that it's the way that you put the blade into it is you can flip the blade back and forth and it'll fl- and it'll basically you can have american style where it's on the push oh, cool. or you can have it on the pull granted it's not made for meat at all it's designed for woodworking but That's i'm like this thing and it was all chromed. I shouldn't say chrome, but it's all nickel plated. So I was like, yeah. this can go through the dishwasher. I can clean this up. You know, blood's not going to stick to it. I'm like, this is going to be a great find just for that. And I picked that up for five bucks. Yeah, now, those saws
2: are fantastic.
1: I haven't found the right tooth size. Do you happen to know what the tooth size is on your pull saw?
2: I don't. It's a finer tooth than um, I'm used to or that I've seen previously. And it, it's also a woodworking tool i think i found it not so much with the saw blades but more with the crafts type type stuff so more for finer cuts uh i I don't know the tooth size but it it is a lot finer than i've seen in other saws i've used it's a a heck of a lot finer than a hacksaw
1: yeah like (laughs) when you're cutting you know two by fours or whatever yeah that's a real uh big tooth just meant for speed i have used a metal um you know, a, you know a metal hacksaw blade that you put on there and i felt like man i'm doing way more work than i need to have happen i feel like i'm taking two smaller cuts this needs to speed up a little more hmm. so i didn't know what size uh yours was or if you knew exactly what you were going
2: i don't i always lean if there is a size difference i always lean towards medium just i mean maybe i'm a middle old kind of guy but you know there's there's always a balance between speed and also am i Am I just removing too much material or am I, is it being cut too harshly? So, one in doubt, go middle of the road. There you go.
1: So, when it comes to your shanks, too, you're using the pull saw. Have you, you've frozen your shank. Did you pre cut the meat and then freeze the shank so that you only had to cut the bone or are you cutting through bone and meat at the same time?
2: I'm cutting through bone and meat at the same time. Yeah. I just, when I'm butchering a deer, I, you know, package the shanks up, throw them in the freezer, and then when I'm ready to make the dish, whether if it's a whole shank, uh, you know, you just use the whole shank. If it's if it's asabuco, I'll just I'll cut through it, um, in one piece.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, a friend of ours, um, on the the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast, we went back and forth, and I, because he was asking me, how do you do yours? And I said, well, I tried freezing mine at one point thinking I was taking a shortcut. And I think that's where I really fell into too fine of a tooth when it comes to sawing because mm, yeah. that, that I was making more pink goo um, and then thawing the the meat due to friction at that point. Right. Where he went the opposite. I mean, he had his fresh ones, but he's like, man, I got to speed this up because I can't. I can't hold it still long enough, so we end up he taking a hatchet to it and then smacking it and basically just making bone shards all over. So neither one of us had a home run with it. Presentation I've always torn, was not good. <laughs>
2: torn it apart. I've always torn whenever whenever I tried to cut them up fresh. I feel like I'm tearing way too much meat up.
1: Yeah, they do. They fall like you start pulling off. It's almost like that calf piece, especially on the hind. You want that to yeah. stay attached, and it always seems to be. Uh, popping off. I ended up having to tie each one, which I don't think I should have to do that, but anyway, that's where I end up going.
2: I mean, if you look at the the kind of um, how a shank is built, it's a lot of individual pieces connected by tissue, so if it's, I guess in my opinion, if it's room temperature, it's going to be a lot more wiggly and hard to work with than if it's just frozen as if it's one solid piece. So I always go frozen.
1: Sounds good. I do like the contrast, though, that you also put on here, that you have the old hickory butcher's knife. That's just an old-school piece that I think that every grandfather seems to have in some drawer someplace. But then you've also went with a uh, space-age Dexter. Well, Dexter's been around for a long time, too, but they've really come a long ways with their their poly handles. Um, is that your go-to boning knife, is that Dexter?
2: Yes, uh, for sure. And the old hickory definitely brought back memories. So I just I bought it because I was like, I remember my, my grandparents having, I think everyone's grandparents had a set in the 70s and 80s. Um, so that that's definitely why I went with that. And I was kind of interested in working with carbon steel, where I hadn't really had experience with carbon before. Um, but the Dexter, I picked up as someone recommended it to me. Uh, a guy I know who who does a lot of, who works a lot in the kitchen. And between the Dexter and I'm now finding out Mercer for a lot of the same reasons, you can get knives that are used in butcher shops and are used in culinary schools for like less than 20 bucks. And they're fantastic. That, that Dexter bowling knife is definitely my favorite knife. Uh, I did just buy a more of a curved blade, somewhat, uh, more flexible mercer for my wife uh in our kitchen and that is that might find its way into my, my knife roll as well.
1: <laughs> there might be a little swap that happens. Oh, no no yeah. that that, even, that one is your knife.
2: <laughs> well they're cheap enough for I could just buy another one. And they really are, are very affordable and they they at least the ones I've got Dexter and Mercer have come out of the box with a super sharp edge, ready to cut and I've just been super impressed with those knives for um, their price point. I, I can't imagine needing anything more expensive than those knives.
1: Exactly. And that steel, too, when you're working with it. Because uh, I've gone along, well, growing up at the the turkey farm here when we process, Victor, Victorinox and yes. Dexter were the two knives that we had. And we're working on... Um, it's like a, the high-density plastic sheets when we're working with our turkeys. Yep. And so you're not having a ton of edge bend over, but you're always hitting the side of the table, which is a piece of steel. Or even just as you're using it, you may not get a chance to steal it back as quick as off, as you possibly can. But that metal is soft enough that even if you get it super dull, a couple hits on that steel and you're going to be able to bring that edge back Or if you do have to take it to a stone or a sharpener or whatever, only a few passes. And it it Mm -hmm. is right back into shape. I know with some of the super hard stuff, it's like, oh no, you got to get down to like certain, like thousands of degrees of grit on that. And you got to make sure that you keep that edge uh, super precise. And where that knife can last a long time with that edge, if you screw that edge up, it takes a lot of time to get it back the way it should be, where I feel it's so user-friendly to use some of that high-carbon steel, cheap Dexter, Victorinox, or whatever that is, because you can then bring it right on back.
2: Well, it goes back to, I mean, if you look at professionals, and I'm sure there are some professionals out there that use, like, artisan-level knives, but it's, you're working in the butcher shop, you're working in the kitchen, it's about efficiency, It's, it's speed and efficiency combined. So you know, if if I have a guy who works in a butcher shop that says these Dexter knives are what I use, and here's why, I'm not going to second guess him, because I know how many animals I process, maybe two to three animals a year, and how many animals those guys break down over the course of a year. I'll never, I'll never approach.
1: Exactly, they'll do your season in a day.
2: Oh, absolutely, and sometimes I'd rather have them do it than me. <laughs> but yeah, it's those Dexter's. I mean. You can tell just like the one I have is is a white handle, which clearly is meant. You can you know if it's clean or not. It's a, it's it's non slippery. You can hold on to it really easily. And I've I've always been a like like kind of with my gear. I've always been a big believer in in function, and kind of the meat and potatoes of it all. And and those knives are, are perfect.
1: How quick can you gun a squirrel with your game shears?
2: Those game shears are relatively new to me, and they've been a revelation. Not only for you just lapping off the squirrel you know, lapping off the squirrels at, at their at their uh, legs, you know, their feet, and just kind of cutting up the side, skinning it, opening its belly up, got it out. You know, put, drag your finger through there. Those game shears are awesome from the field, and then in the kitchen too. And I'm just you know, when we, we eat a lot of chicken in my house outside of venison, and just breaking apart chickens, breaking apart game birds. Those shears are one of those things where I, I was, I I made it through a lot of my life without them, but I'll, I'll never go back to not having something like that.
1: Exactly. I got some little Fisker um, pruners. And yep. um, no, I actually, I got those from Christmas. Cause again, I, I ganked some pruners from my mother at one point. Um, I think I did take those back, but anyway, the Fiskers that I got for Christmas, I tell you, and this, this is several years ago, um, kind of the same sort of deal. Like that definitely changed the way that I handle either bird or, um, small game at that point with a rabbit, when it comes to that rib cage, I mean, two clips and I've gotten through all those ribs, no problem. And it's just sped that whole process up. You know, skinning it, it's still one of those things, like I'm still working on that tail pull. I really want to get yeah. to where I can pull it all at once, and I, I haven't mastered that yet. I'm still doing the uh, shirt and pants, and it does take me a minute. But, man, having a good set of game shears, like you said, just it just changes the way that you're uh, able to attack stuff.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you in terms of processing squirrels. I'm not uh, one of those like, kind of one-move one move and it's clean, guys, either. It takes me a bit more work, but those game shears certainly do help.
1: Have you used them on ducks or anything?
2: I haven't. Uh, I'd like to. I need... Uh, waterfall hunting is one of the things I'm sorely ignorant at. I've never really done it before. I need to get out and uh, do some goose hunting and do some duck hunting. I, I just haven't, haven't done it yet.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I do know the two two big uh, species that you you've talked about, at least uh, from your sportsman's nation uh, side of it is the venison and the wild Turkey. And I know we are in season right now, but we were now approaching uh, the two dish breakdown. This is the crescendo of our show here, Dan, give me a wild Turkey dish that is just your absolute favorite.
2: Oh boy. Uh, Oh, there's the. I'm starting to like more and more like Shanks is utilizing the leg for turkey legs for things that otherwise, you know, a lot of some guys may leave them in the field. And oh boy. So, like, I love like a shredded turkey leg carnitas going back to that kind of uh, uh barbacoa recipe that makes a great if, if, you, if you don't want to use a shank or any part of venison, that kind of barbecue recipe works great with turkey legs. And you might as well throw the thighs in there with it. You betcha. You betcha.
1: Growing up on, I'm granted, my birds uh, at the turkey farm are all domestic. They're the big white ones. So size yeah. is definitely, uh, size and age are on their size, or on their side. Um, but yeah, something that's just, you know, slowly done like that. My, yeah, doing like a split pea soup but at the same time you've done the carditas mm. or the you've slow cooked that leg and just shred it and throw that all in there. Oh, man, just adds so much body to uh, something that would normally just be a soup. Now you got some base behind it. So I'm glad you're adding on to that too. I mean, the breast is always good, and everybody's going to love you know, schnitzel pounded thin. But yeah. when it comes to really adding flavor, I mean, you're putting basically hard work uh, into a dish – not just your hard work, but that bird's hard work, because that's a hard worked muscle
2: on those uh, wild birds. Yeah, man, they work for a living. That's for sure. Uh, you know, the the more and more I I learn to cook uh, outside of what I grew up with, and utilize different cuts. To me, if you give me a bottle of red wine and some thyme in the uh, you know in the cooker, and you can you can make a lot of meat that other people otherwise wouldn't think of tastes really good whether it's ribs shanks legs you know slow cooked in a bottle of red wine and some broth and um, some spices and it you can turn something around pretty pretty well
1: Dan I've already got an idea for you because I, I did talk to a guy that is deep in the um, waterfowl world and he said that he was ashamed to know of all the leg quarters that are left uh, out there in the field that I think that's probably your next article is to our waterfalling friends that, you know, you just said it right there. Hey, just a slow cooker and some wine and time, and you're going to be able to make something amazing. So there's your next mission.
2: I'll, I'll start writing it down. It really is. Uh, like, like if you go back to the Osubuco, right. It, it looks so much like fancier than, than it actually is. It's a very simple dish to make. And anyone, I mean anybody uh, that can have the ability to go out and hunt wild game can cook wild game. It's not that difficult. It's just using the right um, it's using the right methods on the, on the specific cuts of meat
1: Yeah this is going to be a tough one and I'm, we might have to we might have to alter it. Because I was gonna go with a wild game date night, but you said <laughs> yeah, your your, wife, <laughs> your wife's a vegetarian, or at least she's now opened up to uh, not
2: red not red me, But it, 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 I'll just I'll cut you off right there and say uh, again Hank Shaw's uh, General Zhao's pheasant and uh, over rice is, is amazing. That's my nice. go-to.
1: There you go, and and she does enjoy that.
2: Oh, yeah, she loves it. Yeah, that's why I need to get into more water because she's all about the birds. You know, she likes the wild turkey. When I bring pheasant home, she likes pheasant. So I, I just need to get into waterfowling so I can kind of expand our freezer a bit.
1: There you go. Give yourself some more options. Right. So yeah, She did try
2: okay. squirrel. I think she thought it was a chicken wing <laughs> when I made it. And she, she begrudgingly said it wasn't as bad as she thought it was going to be. <laughs>
1: Well, hey, good on her for for trying it out and for being like, you know what, this is important to him, so I'll do a no thank you bite. Good job.
2: You know, it, she's. It's just when you grow up, uh, you with her, with being a vegetarian and growing up vegetarian, it's not. It's less about the politics behind factory farm raised meat and more just so about. It's just strictly a textural thing. She has never grew up getting comfortable with how red meat, kind of that mouth feel. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's been interesting being married now for uh, 13 years, how the way she's she's found her way into wild game eating was very different than I did, but it's probably more representative of a lot of uh, adult hunters these days.
1: Yeah that that is the the gateway into for hunters either like jumping in for with both feet at that point or uh just being more understanding of what's going on around them that yeah nothing is more i would say disarming than something at the kitchen table when you sit down and you present something with your own passion behind it you've got your blood sweat and tears basically on a dish because you had to pursue that and the folks that then do enjoy it they're a little more receptive to listening to, hey, how can I get involved? Or, hey, I'm really glad this is important to you, and it's nice to know that people aren't just out there Elmer fudding, shooting everything up, you know, just for the the fact of shooting everything up. But there's meaning behind what you're doing out there.
2: Yeah, and even and it really gets stressed by even the simplest amount of presentation. Uh, I mean, a lot of that, a lot of those lessons might be lost if you're just tossing a bunch of burger into like a goulash. But if, if you have a, a spring turkey that you're also serving with some morels you foraged or some, you know, ramps, and it just, it looks fantastic. It tastes fantastic. There's undoubtedly a great story behind it. Uh, you know, we did a, a dish for our, a wild game cook-off one time where we, we basically made a deconstructed version, if, if you want to call it that, of shit on a shingle or SOS, and we used... Um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, chip beef on toast. Yeah. We did um, uh, corned venison that I had shot on my farm, uh, and we served it with uh, on, you know, Minnesota wild rice bread with a white sauce made with morels. You know, those morels literally came from the same, you know, within 200 yards of where I shot that deer. So it just does not get more local and homegrown than that.
1: That is so cool. Yeah, don't tell anybody where those morels are at. I tell you, getting any, any information out of Mushroomers, that is incredible. Like, I want to get into finding those, and I want to find my own honey holes, but at the same time, it's like, to get a lead, man, you almost have to sell your soul just to uh, uh, yeah. get any lead.
2: Our farm is owned by, you know, it's a family farm that's it has been in our family since the 1800s, and so right now, six families kind of of own it and we we use it and we all use it for our own reasons um and morel hunting is i mean it is like a it is a contact sport almost So like people are racing <laughs> out there to find them it may, it may cause arguments amongst you know amongst family members because everyone is just morels for a certain amount of our family i think morel hunting is more important to them than, than even deer hunting like they love morel hunting. So I was kind of the, the new guy and I'm sure they've, they are less than happy with me sometimes if I bring in a hall of morels and they can see me from the farmhouse.
1: <laughs> They're like, Oh, good for you. Must be nice.
2: Right. Yeah, <laughs> always with the kind of a sideways, sideways glance. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that morel it's morels are, uh, that's another great entry into wild game and foraging is like, just make up some make some morels for some people.
1: Yeah, you can't turn those down and man, I tell you the the tenderness and then just the meaty flavor you get from those. It's it's a very good dish. That'll be a great segue into rather than a date night, this is your family members finally sick of you. They are done <laughs> with yeah. your business of going out and getting morels and they are they're putting an end to you. You're going to the firing line here in the morning, but you get one last meal this is your last meal request here dan for your last meal before on this earth what is that going to be
2: you know as much as i said early on that i wanted to expand beyond what i grew up with and i have expanded beyond that that meal would be one of the meals i grew up with which is just a really uh simple venison roast cooked in red wine and with onions and carrots and, you know, root vegetables. And with a, a since of my last meal, I might as well pile on as much horseradish as, as I can. Uh, yeah. Just, just a big old venison pot roast, old fashioned pot roast, my favorite. I absolutely love that meal.
1: Hey, that's one heck of a way to go. A lot of fire in that uh, horseradish. That'll, that'll help you stand there uh, with those people glaring back at you.
2: Now, give me what's left of the bottle of wine that didn't make it into the, into the roasting <laughs> pan and a, 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 just a big stinky jar of, uh, of horseradish and events and roasting. I'm happy. i can go out like that
1: sounds good hey that's that's a win for the midwest right there when it comes to pot roast i think that's probably our biggest contribution to the culinary world you know we don't bring a ton of spice and people make fun of us for the amount of cheddar and mayo we use but hey we have a good dang
2: on pot roast so you know michigan's own jim harrison wrote a lot or has mentioned quite a bit in his writings about what it's like for a midwesterner to discover garlic for the first time and, and that it's a hundred percent true. And he, I mean, I'll, I'll trust what Jim Harrison has to say. So.
1: Exactly. That's yeah. That's almost scripture there. Well, Dan, this has been a great hour and folks, uh, Dan's a, a contributor to sportsman's nation. And I know you're at a couple different places. Where can more folks find your writing and, uh, your material? dan uh
2: sportsman's nation really is the, is the place to go uh i will admit i've been lax lately about getting new stuff out there but i'm hoping that changes soon uh in fact it's talking about food i wanted to, i had a pretty good reaction I, I made some homemade pickles uh recently and served it on uh like a barbecue shredded uh, pronghorn neck Uh, that that i barbecued and shredded up so i think i'm gonna put that recipe up on sportsman's nation within the next week here i hope
1: Ooh, yes i'm definitely Uh, gonna tune into that super
2: simple recipe both the pickles are easy to make it's refrigerator pickles so you don't have to have the canning equipment and then the the barbecued neck roast also easy to make i'll probably throw the recipe for both of them up up there uh soon
1: excellent excellent are you a social media guy there dan
2: uh, yeah, you can find me primarily on instagram. Uh, it's my Instagram handle. I think it's Dan born underscored the evolved hunter. Uh, the kind of that evolved hunter thing just goes back to a bit of a plan words but also just kind of goes back to a lot of the same things covered on this podcast, which is just looking at hunting maybe a different way than 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 it's been done traditionally or at least looking at hunting in a way that's not typical to the stereotypes of hunting.
1: I love that add on to your to your handle there that yeah, that we're we're coming at it as a, a thinking man's approach, that there's thought yeah. behind what we're doing, not just, well, why do you do that? Well, we we've always done that. And that's that's an approach that I think I think yeah, the people are not receptive to, but at the same time, when we're able to explain exactly why we do things, I think they're definitely more receptive. And I think that's a huge evolution piece that i think a lot of people here uh in the sportsman realm whether it be an angler a forager or a hunter they've really decided that you know what if i'm going to keep doing this i got to be able to atone for what i'm doing
2: yeah absolutely and uh going back to i guess places you can find me also check out if you haven't already uh check out i know a lot of people are familiar with hunt to eat brand the the t-shirt they do a lot of t-shirt companies they do a lot of work on the conservation end that I look at them almost more as of a conservation kind of funding source and by selling t-shirts they do so much work I've done some writing for them they have a pretty good uh kind of blog section on their website as well and they have got a quite a few I know you've had some ambassadors for hunt to eat on the show previously they've got a lot of great voices there as well so check out hunt to eat all right I've got some stuff up there. Um, I believe I think you interviewed a was it Jonah a couple weeks ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, Jonah. He's actually not too far from from where I'm at, so I'm hoping to hook up with him here after the uh, after the season and and maybe come up with something.
2: That dude's Instagram page fascinates me. He's like the, the scale yeah. of which he does uh, kind of home gardening is 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 amazing.
1: It's one of those things that you uh, you want to achieve this. It's like what what is Jonah doing today? You almost want to have that bracelet, you know, instead of, yeah, WWJD, what, is, what would Jesus do in this scenario? What would Jonah do?
2: <laughs> we we put in our first garden this year uh, largely because I'm home, working from home because of uh, all this COVID stuff. So, I mean, I always have like six garden boxes, and we've expanded on it. And uh, it's, it has been so great watching his social media posts and then just going out like he mentioned is going out during my lunch and, you know, doing some weeding and, and for me, it's been awesome opening experience going from just doing wild game to now growing some of those veggies with it. It, it's expanded my whole outlook on, on, on hunting and cooking. So it's been great.
1: Yeah. I think gardeners get that same thrill. You know, we put a deer down and then, yeah, we have our like celebration meal And gardening just adds that second layer of not only did I harvest the protein from this, but now I'm going to stew it in tomatoes that I myself grew, you know, roughly, you know, you're talking maybe tens of hundreds of yards from where the deer was harvested. And so you just end up with this really neat story behind the meal at that point. Granted, you know, you serve it to like your 10 year old and they're going to be like, eh, yeah, it's okay. But (laughs) they'll get the story later in life, I guess.
2: Oh, yeah. And, and with all this stuff, when it kind of, I, I won't, you know, get too distracted here or ramble on too long, but all these things that we've been talking about, whether it comes from the food or, you know, thinking about conservation and having those all the Leopold quotes come to mind, all that stuff, once you start absorbing that, it makes your experience in the field so much fuller. You know, and it's kind of like going hunting like the first time on antelope hunting, I didn't know anything about antelopes or pronghorn, right? So yeah, fine. It was fine. Hunt with a good time. But then after I, the next year I came in, I read a bunch of books on pronghorn. I watched a bunch of hunting videos. I know their history. And from the moment you first step out into the field, all that extra knowledge just makes your direct experience so much more fuller. Uh, and if, if there's any reason to kind of, Expand your cooking and expand your knowledge of conservation. It'll make your hunting better. It'll be a better experience.
1: Amen. Dan, this has been an awesome hour. You know, I, I don't want to take your your whole evening. Um, so yeah, just just hold on here for for one second. I'm gonna send uh, send folks on out. Well, hey folks, Sounds good. this is uh, this has been a great night. This has been able to take stuff that we normally maybe we think about just making the food of it and we just think about the conservation of it but now at the same time we're we're putting things together and Dan's offered us some great uh, outlook on putting that whole piece together whether it's you know stepping up our kit when it comes to our knife bag or even just some of the recipes that we're doing. There's so much interconnectedness with that that it's all one big story and as evolving hunters we want to make sure that we're we're always being able to atone for what we're doing, but at the same time have a message that says we're not only here to to utilize, but at the same time expand uh, what we're doing. So as you take off from this, make sure you're, uh, you're thinking about your next dish and you're putting together your knife bag and everything that's in there better be sharp.